Hello. We're back. I'm Anelia Varela, and this is The Writer's Podcast, where we talk to people making a difference to their business with words. I'm joined here in the studio by Catherine Brew-Kane, who's been giving a voice to one of the biggest names in healthcare, McKesson. We'll also be looking at some hilariously over-the-top emails from deodorant and vitamin brands, or as Catherine might say, vitamin brands. But the question is, are they really hilarious or are they just plain annoying? You be the judge. Hi, Catherine, and thanks so much for joining us. Hi, Anelia. It's great to be here. This will be fun. As I mentioned, McKesson really is one of the biggest names in healthcare. But for the folks listening today, there might be a good chance they've never heard of the company. Catherine, why is that? Well, quite simply, it's because we're primarily a B2B company. So in most cases, we're not marketing directly to consumers. But within the B2B arena, we actually are quite a big brand. In fact, we've been in business for over 185 years, which a lot of people are not aware of. You know, one thing I like to say, we're pretty much the intel inside of healthcare when you think about it. Our solutions and services really power healthcare businesses across the industry. Now, when you say quite a big deal, you're being a bit modest, aren't you? You're Just fortune, fortune what right now? Fortune six. Six people. That's that's six. That's not 60. That's not 600. That's number six. We're into the single digits on the Fortune 500 here. Correct. Pretty impressive. We Pretty. had about $208 billion in revenue in our last fiscal year. So quite a large company. Like, and now you're just showing off. We, I am. <laughs> <laughs> How long have you been here? I've been at McKesson for going on 13 years, just a couple months shy of that. Started in our U.S. pharmaceutical division in marketing communications and have moved around in marketing communications. Uh, most recently, before being part of the brand team, I led our corporate communications for McKesson and really observed in that role that we had a huge opportunity as a company to have a more distinct brand voice. And so I became, during my time in that role, very passionate about you know figuring out how we could really tackle this opportunity and stand out in a bigger way in the industry and really connect with all of our audiences, first and foremost, our employees. So that prompted me to move over to the brand team, and it's been a pretty exciting journey. Um, So that's a good point about your audiences. Who typically are they outside of McKesson? It's a great question. We actually have many audiences. We have pharmacies, hospitals, long-term care facilities, doctor's offices, surgery centers, biopharma companies, specialty care providers like oncologists, and many, many more. So given the size of McKesson, we actually market and speak to quite a variety of different audiences. Were you any kind of healthcare specialist before you came to McKesson? No, um, absolutely not. In fact, I started my career in high tech, worked for a high tech public relations agency, and then worked in Back in the early 2000s, um, dating myself, some of the early web content management and digital content management software. So started in technology and then made the shift to healthcare because it, you know, I felt very passionate about working in an industry where you can directly feel the impact that it has in people's lives. Going back to McKesson then, it's this big, established B2B company in a massively regulated industry. 
Uh, in our experience at the writer, most companies like that still see tone of voice as maybe a bit fluffy or nice to have. Was it hard to make the case for having a brand voice at McKesson? You know, it's a good question. It definitely wasn't easy, so I'll start there. But it also wasn't as hard as I thought it was going to be. And even though we are a large B2B company, I think why it was an easier sell is that we recognize that everything we do every day at the end affects a patient. So we want to make sure that we really, in every aspect of our brand, show the world that we care and that we're warm as a brand, that we understand our impact on patients because it's somebody's mother, father, brother, sister, daughter, and so on and so forth. And we're all patients at the end of the day. So it was really important for us to make sure that our brand really, you know, showed the world that we felt that true connection to the patient. So in that sense, it actually was quite an easy sell. You had at the time already done quite a bit of work on your visual identity, right? We had starting, I believe, in 2011, 2012, we began quite a bit of work to really transform our brand visual identity. So this was really our opportunity starting in 2017 to really look at our verbal identity as well. Why do you think it is that so many companies focus so much more on the visual, on the logo, on the imagery, even now with so much more content being created? I think there's a lot of things that play into it. I think having a distinct visual identity is very, very important, you know, and I think a visual identity and a verbal identity are equally important. I think it can tend to be a little easier to tackle the visual identity out of the gate because you're tangibly creating these assets, right? Whether it's a distinct, you know, style for your photography, logo, color palette, etc. It can be very gratifying to see those assets come into place. I think a verbal identity can be a little bit more challenging. And to your earlier point, sometimes it can be seen as fluffy. And I think it can take a little bit longer for people to get their heads around how do you implement an actual verbal identity? How do you bring it to life in a way that's as tangible as a visual identity? And it's more subjective as well, isn't it? Everyone has, has lots of opinions. And writing is a very personal thing. Everyone has their own kind of style about it. And so I think that's one of the trickier aspects of rolling out a verbal identity is getting people to understand how do you marry your own personal brand and how you write with really bringing to life the attributes of your company and your brand. Do you feel that's something that you are succeeding in doing here at McKesson? I think so. You know, it's it definitely wasn't without its challenges at first. I think we got a lot of questions about that, a lot of conversations. And in fact, I remember we, we brought you in, the writer, for a couple of sessions to really help us think through how do we approach this and show people how you can really still stay authentic and true to your own self, but bring your company's voice attributes to life. It's so certainly not, not easy, but once you really can show people what that looks like in practice, they start to pick up on it pretty quickly. 
and give them permission. Sometimes Absolutely. that's all they need. They've been dying to do this and they just thought that they couldn't. Taking a step back, what were you ultimately hoping to shift with this brand voice? Well, I think as I mentioned earlier, we really wanted to make sure that our purpose as a brand, which is better health for patients, came through in every aspect. So we really wanted to shift people's perceptions, right? I talked about all of our different audiences who I didn't mention were employees, right? We have nearly 80,000 employees worldwide. That was also a very, very important audience for us to start to shift the perception so that employees really were inspired every day about the difference we make for patients. And so we wanted what we stood for as a brand to come through. We needed to shift that. And I think being as large as we are, Fortune 6 company, sometimes we can be stereotyped as having these large company behaviors, right? Maybe we're too profit-driven or overly profit-driven. Maybe we're hard to do business with, bureaucratic, when in reality, sure, we're a large company, but we actually work on a very localized level with our customers. We go above and beyond. We have a very personal approach to doing business. Our employees know that. We know that. The rest of the world outside of our customers didn't know that. They weren't feeling that. They weren't feeling our passion and our commitment to doing whatever it takes to improve patients' health and improve patients' lives. So that is what we needed to convey, what we needed to shift. And to sum all that up, I would say we needed people to feel our soul as a brand. We were in healthcare, so I'll use the word clinical. We were coming across probably a little too clinical and a little too sterile at times, flat. We wanted people to feel that we had a heart and we had soul. I'll never forget the first time we came to your vision center in this very building, which by the way, um, if our readers haven't had the chance to come to the McKesson Vision Center, it's just this awesome space where you've got kind of mock-ups of doctors' surgeries and pharmacies and all sorts of things. And you can see the kind of, uh, what's it, the manufacturing line of like how the drugs get packaged and it's all very cool stuff. But in the midst of all of that on the wall, there was this one sentence that really, really struck us on the day. And it had been there for ages, hadn't it? Correct. I believe I know which one you're referring to. It's not just a package, it's a patient. And that expression, that motto rather, has been something that's been part of our culture for decades at McKesson. And we truly believe that. Whether you're an accounts payable and you're just making it easier on our customers, or you're on the front lines in one of our distribution centers, literally packing totes full of life-saving medicines every day, putting them on the trucks and sending them on their way, we all feel that what we do makes a difference to patients. And that is ultimately what drove us to really make this shift with our brand voice, to warm it up, to really show the world that we truly care. Well, I remember in that moment, it certainly felt like we were seeing your soul. It was right there on the wall and it kind of made the rest almost easier knowing that it was there. We just needed to bring it out. Catherine, you mentioned that people weren't really feeling that connection with the brand. They weren't really feeling that soul. How did you know that? Well, to be perfectly honest, we didn't go out and conduct a big study. We didn't gather a lot of data. To us, we could very plainly see that people weren't connecting. Our audiences, including employees, weren't connecting with our content, our message, because of the engagement we were seeing, whether it was a social media post 
you know, our open rates on internal emails, comments on our internal articles, things of that nature. We really looked at, you know, just the the raw data in front of us. And that told us very plainly that people weren't feeling very inspired and and motivated to engage in the content. And I think that we we naturally drew the conclusion that if people were more motivated, really feeling that deep emotional connection to our brand, they would go to that next level and engage with our content in a different way. And that's actually proven to be quite true. As we've rolled out a warmer tone, we've rolled out our voice attributes, we've adopted a friendlier tone and a more confident tone. We've seen engagement with our content, both internal and external, increase significantly. And I think what a lot of people forget there is that you kind of have to start on the inside, don't you? Because that is going to come across in that, you know, entire experience that you create for your customers. It just starts filtering out into the outside world. The way that we approach this was by, you know, thinking about our employees, all 80,000 of them, as being our biggest voice ambassadors and really overall ambassadors of the brand. So we needed to roll the voice out internally first, have some really good momentum, show success, and really just by going out and doing it and just bringing the voice to life internally, taking the handcuffs off, giving employees permission to lean in and use the voice themselves and really start to kind of inspire this grassroots movement, if you will, where it just, it truly became a movement and it, it, the movement continues. And by doing that, then it bleeds out external in a very positive way, and you'll get better results if first and foremost you start internal. Were you ever tempted to take more of a big corporation approach to launching it and having a big hoo-ha and going, hey, here's our new voice, go forth and use it? In fact, that is how we started. I think one of the very first plans we wrote for this launch of a new voice was that very standard approach where you have a big moment in time and there's all these communications and we were thinking about a town hall meeting and emails and really just (laughs) exactly balloons ticket tape we're in the u.s now (laughs) (laughs) but what we realized as we went through the process is that when you create a movement and it feels like the movement is owned by the people that it's not coming from the top that it's something that the employees are driving themselves, they're dictating it, they're really owning it, they're helping to bring it to life. It's so much more successful than if you stand on stage at a town hall and tell people this is what you must sound like. People will naturally have that defensive reaction of, well, you can't tell me how I must sound, right? It's much better if they feel like they're owning it and embracing it themselves. Do you think there's any particular part of the voice that has really connected with people and why? I think the the caring attribute of our brand, people have really resonated with that because it has been something, part of our brand identity for so long that we've felt internally, we feel that deep connection to our patients around the world, but yet we know that the the rest of the world hasn't always felt it the same way we have internally. Even though it sort of felt almost at the time when we identified caring as one of our attributes, like a no-duh moment, right? It's kind of stating the obvious. You're in healthcare. You should be caring. 
for us, it was a very strategic, purposeful move to say, we're going to focus on the obvious because it's not coming across and we need to do better. And employees have really grabbed hold of that and they've recognized that and they've recognized the opportunity. Now, interesting, you should say that caring was such a big part of the brand because when we started all of this, that wasn't actually expressed in any of your brand materials, was it? No, it wasn't. We actually had five previous personality attributes and caring was not one of them. What were they again? They were, let me see, they were collaborative, authentic, forward thinking, expert, and optimistic. I can't say I haven't ever heard those before. (laughs) (laughs) But it's one of those things, isn't it? There are so many companies that have almost identical attributes. Not to diss what you did have before, um, but you started there and then what happened? Actually, to, to take a step back, one of the important decisions that we made early on was to say, we're going to revisit first our personality attributes, our brand personality attributes, so those five attributes. And from there, we would then align our voice attributes to be the same. So some companies, and we're aware, you know, make the decision to have personality attributes that really sit at, at the higher level and then voice attributes that sit underneath and ladder up. For us, we, we made the decision to have them be one and the same for simplicity's sake. And we really felt like if this is going to be our personality, it should be our voice as well. Mm-hmm. So we, we started by revisiting our five personality attributes. And through some research we did, we did an audit and we went out and looked at what other healthcare companies, both B2B and B2C, how they were showing up, what they were saying, what their tone of voice was. We took that data, we looked at it, we really assessed what our opportunity was. We held a number of internal working sessions. And through that journey, at the end of the day, we arrived at three, three new personality attributes, not five, but three. And remind me, what were those? So those were caring. We felt that people needed to understand that they were always our priority. So caring was our first attribute that we landed on. Confident was our second. We needed people to know that they could trust us in everything we did. And clear, it sounds so obvious, but clear so that people could understand what we say. We felt that oftentimes we were getting in our own way using a lot of unnecessary corporate jargon. Um, We could have a lot of fun tossing some examples out, but we were getting in our own way too often. And so clear made the short list. Now, if I were being devil's advocate, you could argue that clear and confident aren't particularly groundbreaking new ideas either. So why does that feel right for you? For us, so if we take confident, for example, you know, we are such a large company and yet we are extremely humble, which is a great thing to be. But oftentimes we are so humble that we really shy away from and forget to provide examples and show the world and talk to the world about the great things that we are doing for patients. And so we felt like we could benefit from being more confident while still balancing it with being humble, which we are very proud of, so that people would feel that they could trust us more, that they would feel 
our expertise, they would feel our heritage, and they would feel our experience in the industry. So these weren't just words in a brand book. They're really rooted in the company and what it stands for. Correct. And I'm so glad that you made that point about using the the same ideas for the personality as for the voice, that they became one and the same ultimately because we see this a lot where companies have values, they have attributes, they have a mission, they have a vision, they have purpose. And it's like, oh, we need a voice, so let's throw six more adjectives at people and expect them to remember them. And that just increases your chances of failing, doesn't it? It does. And we felt that people were fatigued already and overwhelmed by how much they had to try to remember. So our goal was to keep it as simple as possible. You know, people typically can't remember more than three things. It was nice that they all happened to start with C. So we lovingly refer to them internally now as the three C's. And it's really helped them take hold. How did you go from the words on a page in your guidelines to really getting people to use that brand voice day to day? Well, I think our approach was just doing it, honestly, bringing it to life in everything we wrote internally. Once we trained some key early voice ambassadors, those individuals primarily in marketing and communication roles who do a lot of the the writing and expression of our brand, after we trained those individuals, which was roughly about 100, 150 people, we just really let it loose. We let the voice out there into the world and just from that day forward, made sure that we were pulling it through. And I would stress that we focused very early on on making sure that the voice was being brought to life in our senior leader communications, including all CEO communications, because that we knew Rather than a formal announcement, a town hall, you know, broadcasting that we have a new voice, if the CEO really starts to shift and show that we have a tone, that we have a specific tone, that it really would give everyone else the permission to lean in and use the voice themselves. And immediately, the first email we sent out from the CEO with the shift in tone, we got so many emails and response being sent both to corporate communications and brand and to our CEO directly saying, wow, this email really resonated. This email really inspired me. And while people couldn't necessarily put their finger on why that was, because we hadn't made a formal announcement about the voice, they felt the difference. And that was proof to us that it was working. And we continue to get those types of unsolicited accolades whenever we send very broad reaching emails out really using the tone people really recognize and respond to the the shift before that do you think people felt comfortable emailing the ceo of this fortune six company direct well you know our ceo is quite approachable so probably some people yes but i think it is a good point i think when you speak naturally in a very warm inviting tone it encourages other people to lean in into the conversation and to write you back and to email you. And that's exactly what we want to see more of. So to any CEOs listening today, if you never want anyone to email you, write really, really badly in a really corporate boring tone and you'll be (laughs) left alone because no one will be reading any of it. (laughs) Obviously, very importantly, have you seen any big improvements? 
We're still early days in our journey, but at this stage, we've already seen a huge shift internally. Everything from executive emails to HR emails to IT alerts all have a much warmer tone, and they're so much easier to read, too. So I feel like not only are we doing a better job of connecting with employees on more of an emotional level, but we're also saving them loads of time. In many cases, our internal communications have been cut in half, if not by more. And the momentum's been really exciting to see. And also externally, we've seen the tone start to shift. We've actually rewritten quite a bit of our mckesson.com website in our new tone of voice. Our social media has really shifted the language we're using, and we've seen a dramatic increase in content engagement on our social channels. It's been tremendous. One of the, the proof points that we're really excited about is that our overall readability score, both internal and external content, has increased by 20 points. So we're using Flash Kincaid to measure our readability. And when we started our journey less than 11 months ago, we were at a 40, which is equivalent a little bit better than the Harvard Law Review in terms of readability. And now we're more along the Reader's Digest level, which, you know, certainly content, a little bit more sophisticated, but we're really using words that are much more normal versus formal and and saving people lots of time and really connecting with them. And so Reader's Digest would be around? A 60. 60. That's pretty good. So just for a bit of context for anyone listening, you know, that's a score out of 100. 60, yeah, that's about Reader's Digest. Time Magazine is around the 50 mark. 100 would be like Dr. Seuss. So probably not appropriate for McKesson to hit 100. So it's not like 60 out of 100 is a bad score. It's actually amazing for a B2B organization. Absolutely. And that was our goal. We set out um, when we began this journey to reach a score of 60. So we're quite pleased that we've reached it so quickly. So that soft launch is paying off. You don't need to go out with a bang, just (laughs) organically get it out there. Was there one point at any stage of this process we thought, we can do this, we got this? I think there, there were a few. One that really stands out for me, though, was when we led our first all-day workshop where we really we enlisted a group of true voice ambassadors and we were going to conduct a full-day training for these 30 or so people to really get them on board. They were individuals from HR, corporate communications, brand, IT, change management, across the board, people that some people I didn't even know or really interact with. And just at the very start of the day, the energy in the room was just phenomenal. People were so excited to be having a full day to really, I think, you know, to use a term that several people did that day, to geek out over words and language. And it was this really fun day where I went into it thinking people might be a little reluctant to spend a full day to, you know, have to catch up the following few days on all their work. And yet there was just this excitement and eagerness to dive in and really think about language in a new way. How do you keep that up? Because there's always the danger that that'll fizzle, you know, within a day or two after the training. I was worried about that. Um, I went home that that night after the workshop really thinking about, okay, we had this great day. Now, how do we keep the energy up? And 
what we did is as a brand team, we committed to sending out very frequent emails. And they were fun emails um, reminding people about the joy of words and the power of words and the power of language and the impact it can have on our brand. And so it was everything from little reminders about how to be more caring, you know, one of our voice attributes to the power of bullet points and using good structure in your writing, but doing so in a way that was witty and engaging. So not only were we winning over people's minds, but we're winning over their hearts as well. Any quick tips for listeners who want to tackle voice in their own huge corporation? Probably not Fortune 6, but anyone else there in what might feel like an immovably traditional or old or stale or corporate environment. So let's see. I think first, first tip would be start by proving the business case to any senior leaders who need to be behind the project, whether that's doing an audit like we did and really collecting some data. However you think you're best going to be able to make the case, but show that there is true opportunity to your brand and to your company by shifting the brand voice. And that'll be different for different companies, wouldn't it? Because different leaders value different types of measurement. Find what is going to resonate with your senior leaders and those who need to champion the project. Next, I'd say make sure that you get your senior leaders bought in early. So anyone who is sending broad-reaching communications out, whether that's internal or external, Make sure that they understand the reason for shifting the voice. They like the new voice. They're bought in. They understand it. And that they're willing to use the new voice immediately and out of the gate. Because if you can get your senior leaders to use the voice, naturally everyone else will follow over time. Also, enroll a group of ambassadors. So reach out to those in marketing, communications, legal, even HR and IT, those individuals who are sending out a lot of communications, get them enrolled, get them to be champions and ambassadors. Those are going to be your cheerleaders along the way, and they will be your feet on the street, so to speak, to help make sure that within their teams and in their groups, the voice is really being brought to life. Offer plenty of training, tools, resources along the way, whether it's webinars, formal trainings, full-day trainings, Anything you can think of, formal guidelines, fun guideline booklets, lots of reminders. People need lots of encouragement and support along the way. And finally, celebrate. Celebrate the wins, the big and the small. You know, really champion people when they are using the voice. Something we've done internally. I know it sounds really silly and and funny, but we printed up stickers um, and they say brand voice superstar. And it kind of takes you back to kindergarten or first grade, but they actually work quite well. And we have sheets of them around the office. People love peeling off the stickers, putting it on each other's papers. If they feel like, you know, someone did a great job of using the voice, people walk around and put it on their shirts, on their arms. Um, Hopefully only when they've earned it. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, of course. You You have have to earn it. People stealing the stash just to show off. (laughs) But the stickers, I would say, have become part of that grassroots movement. People have really enjoyed them. And of course, to be friendly to the planet, we do have digital stickers as well. Well, folks, you heard it here first. Stickers, they're the future. This next segment, we've rebranded the Quickfire Five, but the basic premise remains exactly the same. 
I'm going to ask you our famous five questions where we find out a bit more about your linguistic tastes and tricks. Catherine, are you ready? Let's do it. What's your favorite word? Fastidious. I just love the way it sounds. Question number two. What's your least favorite bit of business language? I'd have to say bandwidth. It just always bothers me. We're not internet connections. We're people. And a close second is probably leverage. Why can't we just say use? I think we should do some kind of little survey or just tally up how much uh, we've had leveraging on this segment of our podcast. It's a, it's a word we all love to hate, I think. <laughs> Get rid of it. Number three, who would you like to write like? Ah, it, this is a bit cliche, um, but I would probably have to say Hemingway. Ever since I was a teenager and read some of his works, I've always connected with his style. For me, I think his writing really demonstrates that oftentimes the most straightforward, simple language is the most powerful. Question number four. If you didn't work for McKesson, which brand would you love to work with specifically to help them with their language? I would have to say Kaiser. There are a lot of brands that I respect and admire, many right here in the Bay Area. I think thinking about just specifically the healthcare space, Kaiser is one that stands out to me as being just this amazing case study of the power of brand voice and really investing in your brand overall. They've been on just such a tremendous journey with their brand and just by speaking to people in a way that they want to be spoken to, just simple everyday language, appealing to people's emotions, they've really completely transformed their brand and their identity out in the world. And I just think it's very exciting and it would be really fun to be part of their ongoing kind of brand movement. Final question. When or where do you have your best ideas? Typically when I'm on BART, which out here in the Bay Area is our commuter train. So usually in the morning or the evening when I'm just staring out the window, um, just kind of taking in the scenery or doing a little people watching, I, I tend to have um, some ideas come to me. And then almost always when I'm on an airplane, I just really love that uninterrupted kind of focus time. Um, it just works wonders. Are you a notebook and pen note taker or iPhone note taker? Pen and paper. Do you always carry one around? I do. Yes. I've, I've um, been using the iPhone a little bit more, but I just love the pen and paper. And finally, there seems to be a new trend in shipping notification emails of all things. You know, there's emails that let you know that thing you ordered is on its way. Catherine, you recently sent me one that a colleague of yours forwarded to you, which inspired this whole segment today. Do you want to tell us a bit more? That's right. One of my colleagues forwarded me an email he received from a, I think, a health and wellness company, and he had just ordered some supplements, and he received this email in response. Shall I go ahead and read it? Go for it. Okay. Dear Ryan, when we finally got through the celebration of your order, we decided to go through our warehouse to find and pack up your package. After we admired your selection, boxed everything up, we handed it off to Lewis, our CrossFit athlete with the endurance of a cheetah. He opened the warehouse doors, warmed up, and stretched, then took his shaker bottle and deliciously drank his pre-workout supplement and was off. 
After a minor cramp a quarter mile into his sprint, he was off again to our local shipping center just one mile away. Though quite sweaty and tired, he inhaled his post-run recovery drink and gave your package to the delivery driver just in time to get it out before the last truck of the day left. Quite an email. What do you reckon, Catherine? Yay or nay? Well, I like, I do like quite a bit that it is much more interesting and that there's a story um, being told rather than a boring confirmation email with, you know, a tracking number. There was vivid characters. I could see it. It was really interesting. I actually took the time to read it. On the other hand, though, I think it was a little long. While it was entertaining, I was missing the key information I needed. When am I going to get this delivery? What are the core details I need? Um, so I got this beautiful narrative, but I didn't actually get the information I needed. So I would say, you know, keep it interesting, but maybe shorten it up and make sure you get the need to know information in there. But really, the big question here is, do you think Lewis really exists? I like to think so, but probably not. Now, what was really interesting when you sent this over, I think it was about, about a week or two ago, the minute I read it, it reminded me of an extraordinarily similar email I received from a deodorant brand called Native. Except that this one, I reckon, is even more over the top than Lewis and his energy drinks and his sprints. Have a listen to this one. I might have to put on my dramatic voice. Anelia, your bar of Native was gently pulled by our team of experts and placed on a gold-trimmed pillow stuffed with the finest fibres known to man. It goes on to talk about the veteran polisher who was once employed at the Tower of London where he was responsible for polishing the Queen's jewels, who polished it as a quiet hush fell over the warehouse. This package is getting shipped to Anelia, he whispered. Take good care of it. And then in the final paragraph, it talks about how they placed my name on their wall under the title World's Best Customer, and they assigned me a dedicated parking spot right up front and hired a pilot to skywrite Anelia Rocks over the Golden Gate Bridge. By which time, I've got to admit, it, it was making me smile. And not only that, I actually sent it round to everyone at the writer as an interesting example of just really kind of unexpected, if slightly bizarre writing. And so it made me wonder, is this the kind of stuff that's going to go viral? Is it a good idea to do it for that reason? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I think there are definitely pros and cons to this type of writing. I think it what makes it work is because it is unexpected. And so you surprise and delight your reader. I think, though, that you need to be careful that you don't go too far because I think you probably only have one shot or one time, maybe two, where you're going to delight the reader. I think after that, if they keep getting these types of long Although entertaining but long emails, they might be more inclined to, you know, not look at it and get, get a little bit put off by it. So I think you need to, you need to strike the right, the right balance. I'm afraid it was even worse than that because not only did they keep sending me long emails, and for the record, this is like a subscription service. So you can subscribe to get this sent to you every month and they will let you know that it's shipped every single month. They didn't just keep sending long emails. They kept sending exactly the same email. And, you know, you read about your name above the Golden Gate Bridge, and it's kind of like, ha, ha, ha. The second time it's like, hmm. The third time it's like, oh, you know, I've heard this one before. Mm -hmm. And it just felt like such a missed opportunity for those loyal customers who keep ordering and ordering. It could be this little moment of delight every single month where they actually look forward to that email. What an amazing story to be able to tell. 
who just kind of missed it by by being this one trick pony mm -hmm. and that's it that's all they got definitely you would need to keep changing it up if you're if you're going to take that approach it feels like there are actually a few lessons we can learn from this i think generally what we're concluding is thumbs up great you try to entertain us but it feels like there are some tips we want to give folks if they are going to want to have some fun so i would say number one here is know your audience will the humor land with them is it so specific an audience that you absolutely know you're on the same page with that kind of humor mm -hmm. and if you're going to do it change it up keep it interesting to your repeat customers yeah, again, there's kind of like real moments of opportunity to give them something new, give them something fresh and keep reinforcing your brand. Mm -hmm. I think you mentioned this point earlier about leaving out the details they really care about. In the case of my native email, there was a button at the bottom where you could track your shipment, but that was the only other information. The rest was genuinely just this very long email about the crown jewels and, you know, skywriting above the Golden Gate Bridge. And that kind of felt like an extra bit of work. So you've just made me read all of that. And now you're going to make me click through to another site that's probably going to take me to USPS or to FedEx or something where I'm probably going to have to do something else. So it's not helpful. So there are still some basic things that these types of emails need to do for you. And don't forget, don't make it style over substance. And finally, be true to your brand, right? So if you're going to have an unexpected piece of writing and really try to surprise and delight your readers, make sure that you tend to do that, right? That, that your writing is very consistent um, and that it doesn't feel like a very much a one-off. So we're not going to see any emails about Lewis and his cheaters from McKesson anytime soon? No, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> That's it from us, folks. Thanks for listening and be sure to join us again next time. Until then, you can email us at podcast at thewriter.com and if you like what you've heard, leave us a nice review on iTunes or wherever you listen to us. If you don't know The Writer, have a look at thewriter.com or our LinkedIn page or follow us on Twitter at The Writer. I am Anili Varela and that was The Writer's Podcast. Talk to you soon. <laughs> oh my God. It's hot, 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 hot with C-Group Kane. In the city. <laughs> I'm just, still trying yeah, to think about if, if I'm doing the, the, re, the, re, the rebranding thing. So um, this next segment, we've rebranded it. It's now called our Quick Fire Five. Should have been called that in the first place. End of run. Put that on your B-roll. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>